We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. We will be in 1 John 4 this morning. Um, as you flip there, since I didn't get a chance to talk to the teens for Sunday school, I will pass on advice that was given to me. If you're struggling with the question of whether to follow pastor's recommendation that if you are saved to get baptized and you're not sure if you are saved or if you should be doing that, First John is uniquely positioned to either provide assurance or convict of the sin of unbelief. So I would encourage all our teens to um, go through that book if they are struggling with that issue as I did at that age and everyone else too, but I, I have the teens on my mind. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come of the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now and is now already in the world. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God, he who knows God hears us, he who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us, and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. And we have known and believed the, the love of God that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. 
If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Let's turn our Bibles to Luke chapter 3, please. Luke chapter 3. We began looking at the first half of this chapter last week, and we'll see if we can finish it this week. Today we're talking about the baptism and the genealogy of Jesus, one of them. And we're starting in verse number 21. Recall last time we were uh, introduced to John the Baptist, one coming in the wilderness preparing the way of the Lord. We talked about the spiritual preparation that he was making amongst the people of Israel and asking ourselves if we need that same spiritual preparation. He used the figure that Isaiah used of straight paths, of smooth roads, valleys brought up and hills brought low to make the way easier, spiritually easier is really what he's talking about, spiritually straight instead of crooked. And so John preached uh, baptism of repentance to the people. We looked at that to some extent. We'll look at it a little bit more uh, this time uh, in the service today. He uh, warned of coming judgment. And uh, the people listened to him, many of them very willingly, others not so much, but they asked him, what should we do? And he gave advice to a number of different uh, questions uh, about benevolence, about uh, being just and fair in their dealings, and uh, content with what God has provided for them. And uh, then, you know, after kind of being introduced to the people, the, uh, they're wondering, oh, is this the Messiah? He sounds like a guy who could be like the Messiah. And of course, John answered and said, no, that's not me. There's one coming who's mightier than I. In fact, so much higher than I that I'm not worthy to untie his sandal, loose it from his foot. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then he talks about the judgment in verse 17, thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn and chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire and many other exhortations he preached to the people. So he was a regular old preacher. But we turn now to uh, interaction between John and Jesus himself, as well as the genealogy of Christ. From earlier in the passage, I want you to note that John actually preached about three distinct baptisms. Did you pick that up? Three distinct baptisms. He talked about the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. That's the baptism that he did. And then he also talked about Jesus when he comes. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit and also baptize with fire. So we have three distinct baptisms going on. John's baptism was a purification ritual. Note, it did not purify itself, but it was a ritual symbolizing purification. Remember, uh, back to your Old Testament Bible stories, if you want to call them that, Bible history. Do you remember Naaman the Syrian? What happened to him? He was cleansed in the Jordan River. Now, he was cleansed from a physical ailment, but that does form, I think, some of the background of this notion of a spiritual cleansing. Gentile proselytes to the Jewish religion did something like this to signify conversion to the God of Israel. 
And it was for them also a purification ritual that they had at that time in history. But John is saying, not only Gentile proselytes need to be washed, you know, ritually purified, spiritually, truly in their hearts purified, but also all of you Jewish people need the same. You don't get out, you know, just because you have an ethnic or religious background that makes you somehow super special. You're not superior to a Gentile who needs to be cleansed. So you too need to be cleansed from your sin. And we've made that point many times in different ways over the years, but you know, your heritage doesn't do anything for you. Your, uh, the fact that your dad is a pastor or that your dad is a deacon or your mom serves in the church or your Christians in your home and your parents, rather, it doesn't help you. You must come to faith in Christ yourself by God's grace through faith, get saved. There was more, in other words, to being in God's people than being in or a member of his people, the Jews. Okay? Remember, the Apostle Paul taught that not everyone who is of Israel shares the faith of Abraham. Not all who are Israel are of Israel. Not all who are physically descended from the nation fit into that spiritual group called God's people because there are many who reject God. Jesus' baptism with the Spirit now, so that's John's. Then Jesus' baptism with the Spirit refers to those who are saved. They are, in this age, immediately united to Jesus in his body, which we call the church. Jesus does the spiritual work by means of the Holy Spirit of God. So it's an entirely different thing than John's baptism. It's baptism with the Spirit. And then thirdly, uh, Jesus' baptism of fire, John mentions, and that refers to judgment. As often fire does, sometimes fire is used for purification, but here it's the water of baptism and that whole ritual cleansing that's the purifying side. The fire side is the judgment side. Okay? He gathers up his wheat into his barn. The chaff he does what with? He burns it up. You know, uh, the, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. What happens when you chop a tree down? Chop it up, let it dry, and burn it up, unless you use it for some kind of lumber. But the picture in the Bible here is of burning up those things. Anyone who does not remain in me, he said, Jesus did in John 15, as a branch is cut off, and they're gathered together and thrown into the fire. Now, a fourth baptism comes to view in this section in verse 21. It says, when all the people were baptized, that's with John's baptism, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized, and while he prayed, the heaven was open, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. So now, we've had the three baptisms that we listed this is a variation on John's baptism, okay? but it's not exactly the same. How could we say that Jesus coming to John to be baptized was the same as, say, me coming to John to be baptized? I'm a sinner, Jesus is not. I'm a mere man, Jesus is the Son of God. I lack, in a lot of areas, Jesus lacked in no area. Okay? And then he says to John about, Fulfilling all righteousness, that's in Matthew chapter 3. So Jesus being baptized by John is not precisely the same as everybody else being baptized by John. I want to investigate that a little bit with you 
uh, today. Somehow differently than all the three baptisms we mentioned already, we have Jesus being baptized. He did not need to repent. He did not need to be added to his body like Holy Spirit baptism does uh, because he's the head of the body. He would be, in a sense, it wasn't really a baptism by fire, but he was going to be judged by God for sins of others, not for his own. To understand better the baptism of Jesus, we can refer to another passage, and that is what I mentioned already, Matthew chapter 3, if you'd turn back there. Matthew chapter 3, Luke 3 and Matthew 3, quite parallel this way. There's a little bit of a longer explanation here in the passage, starting in verse 13, Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. That phrase is a loaded phrase. We want to look at that in a moment. Then John, it says, it says John allowed him or he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Well, let's look at this and just for a moment. Jesus was baptized, meaning that he was immersed in uh, the water, under the water of the Jordan River. Now, John had tried to prevent him for a good cause. You know, John was a sinner, and uh, as good of a man as he was, and great among the prophets, the greatest, uh, born among women, but that's nothing compared to the Son of God. Jesus was, though, baptized, and we'll look at that phrase in fulfillment of all righteousness in just a moment, but it appears that right after his baptism, he was praying, he came up out of the water, and the heavens opened. Somehow there was an appearance of the sky splitting, somehow opening. I don't know exactly how that looked. It would be nice to see a a little video of it, but uh, too bad. We don't have that. Nobody had their recording devices then. And the Spirit came down. Now, notice what it says in um, chapter 3 of either of these um, gospel writers. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And so I want to just emphasize that the text of Scripture is fairly precise here. It doesn't say that the Spirit of God was a dove that came down. It says that it descended upon him in a bodily form like a dove. John and, or and John, yes, and Matthew and Luke are trying to say, explain what did this supernatural phenomenon look like. I don't believe that a white-winged animal known as a Columba livia or any of the taxonomic family of pigeons, for that matter, flew out of the sky and landed on Jesus. What came upon him was the Spirit of God looking like a dove. Now, the other mistake that people make about this passage is they say, well, if the Spirit of God came upon him, then he must not have had the Spirit of God before. Uh Uh-uh. Wrong implication, wrong thinking, okay? If John the Baptist 
were filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. Remember that portion in Luke chapter 1? Then do you suppose Jesus was any less? I highly doubt it. In fact, my doubt is so high that it's impossible to even think. Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember, he wasn't just a mere human being. Luke uh, 2.40 explained that Jesus became strong in spirit, just like John the Baptist did in chapter 1 and verse 80. And so if John was filled with the Spirit, most certainly Jesus was. But this was rather a special anointing of the Spirit of God, especially visible to onlookers when he was baptized to validate his ministry and set him apart as an extra special messenger from God. Okay, Just imagine, this happened to no one else. The crowd there is gathered around at the baptism, sees this happen, come down on Jesus. What do you think they're going to think? Man, this guy is something else. He is special. And that is indeed what was the truth. In fact, the Lord God and the Father himself added to this whole scene by uh, speaking from heaven in verse number 22. And a voice came from heaven. This is very rare, but it did happen. A voice came from heaven here. It came from heaven in John chapter 12 when Jesus was about to, uh, or 11 when he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. Um, and of course, there will be in the future as well a trumpet, the shout of the archangel, but this is really specifically the voice of God. And I'm thinking of one other one too on the Mount of Transfiguration when a voice came out of the clouds, so to speak, and uh, was quite alarming. Well, there was another time too although it was the voice of the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. Remember that? So we probably can look up, maybe there are one or two others I'm not thinking of off the top of my head, but you get the point. This is quite a unique situation in world history. You are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. Now Jesus has lived, as we later learned, for about 30 years. 30 years was the kind of demarcation point for a priest to begin his ministry up until age 50, It was at that point that a man was expected to be spiritually mature, mature enough to lead God's people in the Word of God and in teaching to others. Think about that, okay? By the time you're 30, you need to be fully ready in service to the living God. But he's about that old, and with him, there was no fault found. Can you imagine the Lord as a a person, a real genuine human being, No sin, no bad thought, no bad word, no flaws, no uncleanness in him whatsoever. And notice how this echoes some portions from the Old Testament Scripture. For example, in the opening, uh, second to opening chapter in the Psalms, in Psalm 2, it says in verse 7, I will declare the decree, the Lord has said to me, you are my son, Today I have begotten you. You are my son. And then another one in the prophets in Isaiah 42, it says this, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Clearly, God intends, and Luke intends for us to understand, that this man, this God-man we know, but this man Jesus, is the servant of Isaiah. 
He is the Messiah. He is the one upon whom God placed His Spirit. You see that? It's just plain as, as day there in the text. So let that sink in for a moment. No one else who was baptized by John had these things happen to them. Many witnesses saw these events unfold before their eyes, the opening of the heavens, the Spirit descending like a dove, the voice from God combining to mark Jesus as an extremely important and unique person. No one was like him. Now, the hard question from this passage, which we'll spend just a few moments looking at this morning, is why was Jesus baptized in the first place? I mean, he didn't need repentance, did he? We can dismiss that question immediately because he did not need to repent of anything. He, he had the right mindset. He had no behavioral issues to change his mind about or turn away from. He had done no sin at all. I want you to remember, too, that getting wet in the waters of the Jordan doesn't produce repentance. It didn't produce it for Jesus, and it didn't produce it for anybody else that got in those waters. Are you with me? Okay, it's not that you get baptized in order to turn away from your sin or in order to be forgiven. It's that you repent and you're forgiven and you baptize then in order to demonstrate or show as a symbol of your cleansing. Water baptism was the fruit of a changed heart, not the root of the changed heart. Someone would only come to be baptized by John if they had made a prior decision, perhaps listening to his preaching, a prior determination in their mind that I need to turn away from sin and I need to believe in God. Whether it was Jesus or anybody else who was baptized, that baptism did not create repentance for them. But Jesus didn't have to make a prior determination to turn away from sin because, again, I said he didn't have any. So what is this about? So we've said what it what the baptism wasn't, it didn't produce repentance. It wasn't that Jesus needed repentance. So what was it then? What was it positively? Well, part of the answer is given Matthew chapter 3 when Jesus said to John, permit it to be so now for us to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean, to fulfill all righteousness? To me, as I've studied this and thought about it, it seems to have a broad meaning that encompasses the entirety of Jesus' work in providing for the salvation of the world. You know, you can kind of hunt around and think, well, was there a prophecy that had to be fulfilled that Jesus would be baptized or something? And I'm not finding that specifically. But that it, it's, it's kind of the inaugural, and I'll mention that again later, element of his walking into the plan of God and ministering for him and being uh, you know, publicly identified as the Messiah. In order for Jesus to do what he did in providing salvation, he had to be associated somehow with the people who repented. And we're going to see that he's associated with us hum- in, in his humanity and the genealogy. That's one of the purposes of it. It connects him to us. But he was connected by the same ritual cleansing that they did, and thus by participating in it, made that connection another way with the sinful people that he was coming to save. He connected to the cleansing symbolism of the ritual, not because he needed cleansed, but because he was the cleanser. He was associated with the message of the ritual because 
he approved John's message and because he was the fount of that message. Again, Jesus was connecting himself to the sinners who needed repentance and to John and to his message. Baptism has that kind of connotation of identification, you know, connection. It's kind of like when we shared the Lord's table earlier today. We are identifying ourselves with Christ and his work, and we're identifying ourselves with one another because we're all sharing the same juice, came out of the same container, we're all sharing the same bread, came from the same matzah, and we're saying we are together his people. These ideas are so important, yet we're so kind of individualistically minded that we'd miss that whole realm of truth. The co-association of people together, in this case, sinners with Christ. After all, Jesus did come to seek and to save, finish it please, that which is lost. He came to heal the sick. You know, it's not the well that need a physician. He came to call sinners to repentance. So he's identifying with them. You know, he didn't go up and hang out at the court of Herod to identify with him or hang with the, uh, you know, the Pharisees and the scribes in the temple all the time to identify with them or go to their school to identify with them. He went to humble John's baptism and identified himself with sinners. And so launching him into the ministry that would, would fulfill all righteousness, that is, after all, when we believe in Christ, that is when we achieve, or if you, I could say not achieve, but what's the word I'm looking for? Obtain, are blessed by righteousness. All righteousness in Him. This baptism also is an official inauguration of the Lord. So it's to fulfill righteousness, number one. It's also an inauguration into the ministry that would send Jesus to the cross, both to pay for sins and to secure the ability of him to share his righteous standing with his people who need that forgiveness and that imputation of righteousness. That's a critical gospel thought there. That's really how salvation works. How, you, you could ask you know, yourself, how do I become a Christian? Well, turn away from your sin and turn to Christ. You, as the Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. But then if you were to ask a follow-on question, how does that actually work? What's the, can I say it in a mechanical way, what's the mechanism that makes that machine go? Yeah, just believe, but why? Well, because he died for your sins, lived righteously, and provides for you a righteous standing before God. That's what happens. You don't have to do that because all you have to do is believe in Christ. But the machine that runs that, that gospel of salvation behind it is Jesus dying for you, and paying for your sins, rising from the dead again, and taking care of all of that behind the scenes. You know, believe is like the, the, front, the sign on the front door. But when you open the door and look in, you're like, wow, there's a lot going on here. A lot more than I initially realized, right? Yeah, that's quite a machine operating in there that Jesus did all of that, fulfilling righteousness and paying for the sins of... I mean, think of what Jesus did on Thursday night and Friday, if you take a Friday crucifixion, and Saturday and Sunday, and descending into the depths of Sheol and proclaiming and and suffering the wrath of God and all of that stuff. It just blows your mind to think what God Christ has done for us. 
Another part of the answer of why this baptism, besides inauguration and besides fulfilling righteousness, has to do with what baptism pictures, what it symbolizes. Going down into the water and coming back out looks suspiciously like death and resurrection. Okay? Uh, it also has a cleansing element to it. I mean, if you want to wash something, you probably generally start with some kind of water-based solution, Right? You know, maybe add a little bit of uh, Dawn dish soap or whatever uh, to uh, make it work a little bit better. But, uh, you know, if you need any more heavy-duty thing, you go on to some other chemical that will take off the or dissolve the substance you're trying to clean. But, we, you know, we think about cleansing in terms of water, washing, bathing, showering. Jesus, however, of course, did not need cleansing, but he did picture his upcoming death and resurrection to be associated with those who would be finally clean because of his work. And then, fourthly, the baptism marked a public authentication of his ministry. So it was to fulfill all righteousness. It was to inaugurate his work, to start him off, kind of launch him, if you will, publicly, and then to picture cleansing and death and resurrection, but also to authenticate his ministry from heaven. The Spirit of God... And God the Father both have a large red stamp saying approved on Jesus. The Spirit of God comes down. The voice of God comes down. This is, this is as much as you can get. This is all you need. He's approved as the servant of God, the Messiah. Now, we cannot be baptized just like Jesus was. Remember, I've said his baptism is a little different than John's baptism. And in fact, we aren't baptized like John's baptism entirely. Okay, So now we've talked about a baptism of fire, a baptism by the Holy Spirit, John's baptism, Jesus' baptism, and now there's a fifth. The fifth is baptism according to Matthew 28, 18 to 20. The baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That ritual that we have here and, and any uh, Christian church has, should have, that you should participate in, if you haven't already, to be baptized in water, to affiliate with Jesus and with his people. So we're not baptized with John's baptism in particular, nor with Jesus. So I don't use the language that we follow Jesus in his baptism. Rather, I would use the language we follow his command to be baptized in that particular way, which now actually has a fuller meaning than John's baptism. You think of John's baptism, it was associated with the, the doctrine of repentance from sin. And when we're baptized, we also are associating with that same doctrine. But what else are we saying? We're saying, I'm with Jesus himself in his death, burial, and resurrection. I'm being baptized in the triune name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. John didn't do that. I'm associated with Jesus who died for my sins and rose again. And by the way, I'm associating with this group of people who call themselves Christians because I'm sharing in the same baptism that they have. So, yes, we have repented, but we're saying more with baptism. We're saying in addition to all that John's people meant by being baptized, we're also making clear our connection with Jesus and with his people. So, Maybe you didn't know before you came today there are five different baptisms. We've just gone over all of them. And I'm not trying to make a, you know, a huge deal and get you all confused. I'm just saying read the text and notice what it says and just take it at face value. 
it's not a big deal. I mean, God is able to change his program over the course of time, isn't he? I mean, not everything is the same as it used to be. Thank the Lord. (laughs) Otherwise, we'd still be offering sacrifices, coming on Saturdays, avoiding ham sandwiches and all the rest of it. That's not what our portion is in this day and age. Now, the other thing is, I realized when I was studying this, I have to take a section of time in our message to talk about the doctrine of the Trinity because it's so confused and and, uh, difficult for people. We see in this section Jesus being baptized. We see the Spirit of God, and we see God the Father speaking from heaven. Okay, These are three persons speaking or acting here. The doctrine of modalism, okay, if you want to just put modalism, just put false with an arrow next to it, okay? (laughs) Modalism says that God appears in three different modes at various times. You know, so he's father sometimes, he's son sometimes, he's spirit sometimes. Uh, He uh, maybe has three faces, three facets, three aspects, something, some variation of that theme. But the text here severely undermines this doctrine because there is not one quick-change artist who's taking all three roles in this historical situation. There are three distinct persons, not a quick-change artist, acting as three different people in succession. So the doctrine of the Trinity is this. He is God, one God, existing in three persons. He is, in other words, triune. Okay, triunity. Each person is distinct but shares the single nature of God. Each of the three members is equally God, equally worthy of our worship, equally infinite, equally eternal, equally powerful, equally wise, equally knowledgeable, and whatever else we could say they are. They're all equally that. They all share those attributes. They exist simultaneously as three distinct persons, not as one with three faces or three manifestations or three roles or three offices. This doctrine, although we've stated it only briefly here, uh, is important to the Christian faith and in fact distinguishes Christianity from all other strictly monotheistic religions. And I think from all religions, certainly the major ones. In fact, it's so critical to our faith that the devil will try to emulate it in the last times. There will be an unholy trinity of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. You can look in Revelation and see that. But no one and nothing can duplicate the glory and the holiness of the true and living God existing as he does as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I caution us, you know, if you think, well, I ought to be able to understand God better than that. I don't encourage you to think that way. You are a sinful, finite, limited person. If you can say with me, I don't fully understand who God is, he's beyond my comprehension level, I would encourage that. I would encourage intellectual humility. God is not a man. Okay? He's got this unique 
a constitution, if I can call it that. Three in one. And why should we expect God to be like us? We're, we're, a, we're just a shadow of his image. He's made us in his image. We have some likeness, but we're not entirely like him. And so let's, re, let's regard him with humility, recognizing that God is different than we are. And in the final analysis, inexplicable. But we can, as far as we have, explain him. And, and many theologies have gone much farther in uh, detail and kind of digging out what the Scripture indicates about our God. But this is a summation of what we believe as Christians, the triune God. And they're all present here. We see, too, you know, when you're baptized, you're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You see them there. You, you see the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 talk about the fellowship of the Spirit and love of God and the, the faithfulness of Christ and all these things, the several portions that put all three of them together. That was the revelation for the Apostle Paul when he realized, ah, the servant is not merely a man. Because Paul was an expert in the Old Testament, remember? I mean, he knew it inside and out. When he realized, oh, the one we're talking about is divine, the deity, the, 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 the God-man, this is God's great wisdom in bringing about the doctrine of salvation because it wasn't possible for a man, mere man, to redeem humanity. Jesus is a man, and the next portion of the text tells us that in terms of his genealogy, but he's more than that because... If you look at verse 38, it says that, because uh, it goes down through the list here, he's the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Okay, so this genealogy, I'm not going to read through it. I'll let you uh, puzzle through all those names, good Hebrew names there. But this is different than a genealogy presented in Matthew chapter 1. First of all, this one's longer, goes all the way back to Adam and to God. Uh, second of all, they're different because Joseph is the one whose genealogy is given in Matthew 1. So, or in other words, Jesus' genealogy through Joseph, his legal right to the throne. But here in Luke, if you just set the two genealogies side by side, you'll immediately recognize they cannot be of the same person because you have such differences between the two after uh, David in particular. Solomon on the one hand for Joseph and Nathan on the other hand. And, uh, you know, some have suggested, well, maybe there was a lever at marriage there, there's some kind of adoption or something like that. We don't know exactly uh, what may have occurred. In fact, there's a place in the two genealogies where they merge for a couple of generations and then split off again. And we believe that has to do with some kind of adoption or lever at marriage. But at the end of the genealogy, when it comes down to Christ, look at what 23 says, Jesus himself began his ministry about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, the son of Heli, son of Matthat. And so I take that language as was supposed to mark that there's something special going on here in the genealogy. And so really, uh, Joseph, he was supposed to be the son of Joseph, but he's really a descendant of Heli and that whole remaining list which gives us his descent through Mary, as I have understood it. As a result, Jesus has two genealogies given in Scripture, one for his father, one for his mother, and both pass through David. So guess what? He has Davidic messianic connection 
whether you look at either his father or his mother side of the situation. Um, so that's that merge point, by the way, is that Shealtiel and Zerubbabel, as we uh, said earlier. Zerubbabel himself is quite an interesting character because if you go back to, um, oh, I'm trying to think of the portion in Jeremiah chapter 22. It's in Jeremiah 22, 24. As I live, says the Lord, though Coniah, that's Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet on my right hand, yet I would pluck you off. So God, right here, this is Jeconiah, the, the kind of the end point of the Davidic dynasty before the people are hauled off to Babylon. And I you say, why Jeconiah? What's up with him? Well, I, I keyed in on that verse because God says, is, is, if you were like the signet ring on my hand, I would still pluck you off. A Davidic a descendant, God says, you're done. Write this man childless. No one will prosper sitting upon the throne of David from his line, which made it very difficult for there to be a restoration of the Davidic dynasty. But if you look at Haggai 2.23, which I've referenced in the notes here, I should have, I did in my study, I should have put on there Jeremiah 22, 24 as well. But in Haggai 2, 23, it says, In that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, says the Lord, and will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. So God plucked off that signet, and now he's kind of putting it back on. There was a cutoff or a pause in the Davidic dynasty. Now Zerubbabel's come back. He's in the line of David, and God is saying, I'm pleased with Zerubbabel. I'm bringing things back into operation. In Acts chapter 15, is it Acts 15 or is it Acts 9? Acts 9, 11 to 15. I'm getting confused because it's Amos 9 to 11 to 15. Anyway, uh, 15, it's chapter 15 in Acts. James teaches there that although the tabernacle of David has fallen down, God is going to raise it back up again and cause that the remnant of the Gentiles will come and seek the Lord through that tabernacle of David. That's speaking of the house of David, the household or the, uh, the uh, royal dynasty. It's not talking about a physical building there. Now, if we digest the whole genealogy, which I know we haven't read through, but you know, just notice the pattern. It talks about Jesus, and it goes backwards in time as you go all the way back to Adam and then to God. It does two things. It connects Jesus to us because he is a human. It connects him to all the Jews, first of all, because he's very Jewish. Okay? You can't really get much more Jewish. And he's also... Uh, very human, <laughs> in that he comes all you know all the way back from Adam. So the second Adam, from the first Adam. Okay, so it connects Jesus to us in humanity. He has to be a human in order to be a savior for us. Theologically, that must be true. But also, it connects him all the way back to God, because he's the Son of God. It's as if. God, in creating Adam, knew, which he did, knew that he was going to be creating his son in that same image. 
Or in other words, he created Adam in the image that he wanted his son to be. And Adam failed, but his son succeeded. And we'll see more of that in the temptation and the wilderness and all of that in chapter 4. But so we have Jesus connected integrally to the human race and also to God, which makes him eminently suitable to be a savior. Okay? Now, let me close with this simple ask, this simple question. Put yourself back in 27 AD. Okay? Think of yourself there. You're observing this man who is very strangely dressed, who has a very strange diet, out in the wilderness, calling for people to repent. He's saying you need to do that in order to please God. He's preaching, 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 convicting of sin, and you're listening. And I ask you this question. Would you associate with John's message? Would you associate yourself with this message of John, this message of repentance, this message of turning to God, this message of doing works befitting repentance? Would you humble yourself and participate in this man's ministry by being baptized by him? This man who's seen by the leadership of Israel as one strange bird, if not an out-and-out lunatic, Would you repent of your sin in that context? Would you, in that humble situation, turn from your idolatry, repent of your covetousness, turn away from your lust, your blasphemy, your filthy language, your immorality, your bad thoughts? Would you admit your need to be cleansed from sin? This I say not because we go back there to do the exact same thing that Jesus or that John did, even that Jesus did, but I'm saying this as a way of illustrating. Put yourself in that position and ask, are you humble enough to admit you're wrong? Are you humble enough, even in the context of a very strange messenger from God, to say, I'm not going to let all of that stuff bother me. All I know is, I've got to get right with God. I've got to turn away from my sin. I've got to make my heart ready for the coming of the Lord. Now, we do that a little bit with a more fuller meaning today. We've talked about that. But the test is, are you humble enough to admit that you need to repent? Or would you look at John and say, that's ridiculous. I don't need any of that. I'm okay on my own. Now just take John out of the picture and put Jesus into the picture. You know, John said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You need to turn to God. You need to do works befitting repentance. So you just replace John with Jesus. And now ask yourself the question, are you willing to turn to him and say, I'm done with sin. I'm going to follow Christ. That's our question today. I leave that on your mind and ask you, if you have done that, praise God. If you never have, please, don't be stiff-necked. Don't be so difficult, okay? The fact is, you have life right now. You're going to face death, that appointment that our brother talked about. 
and this morning, and we want you to have eternal life. How nice it would be if all of us were be able to, would be able to gather again one day beyond the river in the eternal state and have a little worship service to God because all of us have turned away from our sin and believed in Christ. Heavenly Father, I pray that your words will have a deep impact in our hearts today, that you would take away from us the bent, the inclination towards sin and instead bend us toward righteousness. Turn our hearts to thee, we pray. May these words bring, if they can, by your spirit, conviction. In Jesus' name, amen.